welcome to another episode of At The Margin. This is the final episode in conjunction with the Irish Society for Women in Economics. This episode features a panel of discussions to cover issues surrounding gender diversity in the Irish economics profession. I'm joined by Margaret Samita, Assistant Professor at UCD, Kevin Devereaux, Assistant Professor at Peking University, and Mita Griffin, now based at the European University Institute in Florence, but who was a research assistant with ESRI at the time of recording. The conversation revolves around some research being carried out by Margaret and Kevin, with some additional insight offered by Mita. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Maybe we could just do a round table and everyone could just introduce themselves and say, um, you know, who you are and uh, your background, and just so everybody's familiar with, can hear your voice, put a voice to the name. So maybe go around in a circle here. Uh, Margaret, you're first on my screen, maybe if you want to kick off. Sure, uh, I'm Margaret Samaita. I am an assistant professor at the UCD School of Economics, and I do research in behavioral and experimental economics, um, nowadays focusing on the role of, of social norms on behavior, uh, but in the context of what we're going to be speaking of, uh, I'm the PI for the project. Excellent, thanks very much. And Mida? Hi, my name is Mida Griffin, and I'm a research assistant at the Economic and Social Research Institute in Dublin, and um, I work in applied microeconomics, broadly speaking, and I have an interest in gender economics, and I uh, am also a committee member of the Irish Society for Women in Economics, so um, trying to see how we can uh, improve the Irish economics landscape. Very good. And then Kevin? Hi, I'm Kevin Devereux. I'm an assistant professor at Peking University. I work in labor and health. So I am an economist, but I'm not a woman. I'm not in Ireland. So you might wonder what I'm doing on the project. I used to work at UCD. I was a a colleague of Margaret. Um, After winning the call, uh, Margaret had a chat with me about uh, doing some of the web scraping to get some data we use for the project. And as we were talking, I kind of felt like, oh, you know, I'm I'm just saying about doing this and doing that. I, I should just go do it this afternoon. And I guess Margaret was thinking the same thing because she's at the end of the conversation. She says, ah, here, why don't you come on and do it? We work together on this. So thanks, Margaret, for inviting me on the project. Thanks, Niall, uh, Niall for having me on the program. So, uh, yeah, let's go. Good stuff. OK, so the project being uh, one of the papers we're going to talk about shortly. I suppose to put the context of what we're going to discuss, uh, we already had a discussion of just sort of setting up the issue of you know, gender issues when it comes to the economics profession. And today we're going to maybe delve a bit deeper into that and maybe look at uh, how these sort of issues transpire and maybe perhaps look at some of potential solutions that some that have worked and some that maybe haven't worked. Um, But I suppose to kick things off, what would be the objective, I suppose, just to work from that then in terms of framing the discussion? So in terms of the objective, I suppose we're looking for gender equality in uh, in the economics profession. Uh, and as we are in others, but I suppose this is the, the discussion today focusing on, on economics, particularly in the Irish context. Um, and I suppose the, you know, there is an issue with underrepresentation and, and lack of participation of women in economics, um, with 36% of undergrads as women, um, 41% of academic economists who are women, and, and only 32% of full professors. Um, And I think, you know, people might ask, you know, well, are women and girls just less interested in economics than boys or or men? And if we should just kind of leave it that way. 
But I think what we're going to get into today is, is showing how there are quite significant impacts from relatively small interventions, such as kind of providing a bit of encouragement, information, some role models and that kind of thing. And a lot of robust evidence that, that, that there are barriers that hamper women's careers in economics. So I think we can be pretty confident that this kind of low, low take up of, 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 you know, of, of economics by, by, by women at different stages of their careers is, uh, is not really a natural state and that there's actually a lot we can do to diversify the profession and make it better for everyone and for, for society as a whole. Sure. Okay. So I suppose the first thing then is to try and figure out, well, what type of bias is there or, or to what extent does this manifest in an Irish context? Um, and would that be a fair way to sort of frame maybe the work you've done on, on the working paper study in an Irish context and trying trying to get a handle on this? Yeah, exactly. So there's been quite a bit of work done documenting the uh, gender um, uh, differences in terms of um, publication, and especially there's recent work by uh, Hengel uh, and Card and co-authors um, finding that uh, women are typically held to a higher standard when publishing, um, and this they they have managed to uh, uh, come to this conclusion by looking at citation patterns. So. Um, papers authored by female authors tend to be cited more, which seems to imply if citation is gender neutral, that these papers are of better quality, which suggests that it's harder for um, female authored papers to, to be published. So we wanted to step back from uh, that process and kind of uh, yeah, avoid all the, all the uh, I suppose stereotyping or all the biases that might come into play in these um, publication processes and the gender um, and the uh, peer review system, and come to uh, yeah a more objective measure of productivity where uh, it is not subject to uh, peer gender biases. So this is why we're looking at uh, working papers, which uh, in theory one could just publish, uh, you know, in in just by sending an email to to our admin as, as it's what happens at UCD. Um, I don't know if Kevin wants to add a bit more to that. Um, yeah, so the, I think um, there's a couple of papers out now and there's a more recent paper with uh, Hengel and her co-author as well, just uh, really diving into that peer review process. And the fact is it looks different for men and women. Um, you get uh, different, uh, responses of moving on to R&R, revise and resubmit, which all we economists need is our lifeblood in order to get the first step into those publications. Um, conditional on getting into a journal of a given quality, uh, papers authored by women get more citations, as Margaret was saying. So yeah, if you take the citations as an unbiased measure of quality and you take the uh, journal acceptance as a mix of quality and discrimination if the reviewers are putting up an extra barrier. Um, in that case, then it looks like the, um, that there's a higher standard for women again to a given journal. Regardless of your interpretation of what citations mean exactly is that the unbiased measure of quality is journal acceptance more biased than that. The fact is the process looks different. Okay. So the call for research that uh, we answered says, um, why don't we take a step back, look at the working paper stage, and let's start from there. We're going to have a few results at the end that put the publications back in there, but most of this is going to be 
at this, this sort of the productivity of the researcher sitting at their desk, getting the research out and not having to deal yet with that nasty peer review process that can uh, yeah. introduce uh, another realm of gender bias there. So when I think about that sort of peer review interaction, it seems more like how women are treated in that whole process versus men. Whereas with the working paper study, it feels a bit more like it's just the rate of productivity and maybe it, it does it, it tackles more a case of what sort of constraints what other draws on on the time there are for women versus men maybe that is that what you're getting at there are a couple of caveats there so we are measuring productivity in the sense of uh, papers being published in uh, the working paper series of an irish institution and here we're capturing five different irish institutions but of course, we might be missing papers where uh, the author decides to uh, publish at their co-author's institution, which is not in Ireland. Um, or there might be some fields uh, where if you want to submit to a journal, they uh, forbid you from having published a paper as a working paper. So uh, those fields, uh, at least from what I know, one of them is health. There might be other fields. So if those fields are yeah. um, female-dominated, we might be underestimating the productivity of women um, through our analysis. Yeah, with those caveats in mind, uh, what we have is uh, the raw productivity of males and females publishing in the five uh, working paper series. Is it the number, the rate of working paper out, or the rate of productivity in terms of over a certain period of men versus women quantified by working papers? Is that what you're looking at or what exactly is, I suppose, is, is the metric of analysis? The number of working papers produced um, per person between 2016 to 2020 inclusive. Okay. And what sort of findings then or what, how did you process the data or what, what would be the, the take-homes, I suppose? Uh, I'll let Kevin speak about processing the data. Oh, sure. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's what you brought me in here for. So... Um... <laughs> So I'd done a bit of web scraping in the past, and I'd talked with Margaret about doing it on Repec, which is what all we economists use for ranking ourselves and deciding who's the top economist in our department or the top economist in the country. And it's all very competitive because they have all the bibliographic information there. So they also have all the working paper information. So he said, here are all the working paper series. They're in a nice common format. Let's start by scraping the information they have there. And Margaret had actually started doing something along these lines during the pandemic to look at the differential effects of uh, work from home on men versus women. Now, it turned out the low-hanging fruit on that topic had been uh, very aggressively attacked. And I think then there were something like 11 working papers out on the subject. So, um, so with this call for research, uh, we decided to revisit that. And the first thing we do is narrow the focus. And we're looking at just five economics departments in Ireland. That would be UCD, TCD, Maynooth, and then the Central Bank and the ESRI. So why these five? Now, there are other departments in Ireland, of course, but they don't maintain uh, active working paper series squarely in the field of economics. And so because of the research focus, we don't want to get this bias from the peer review process we limit our attention to these five. Okay, pull the working paper series as listed on Repet. And so we have this going all the way back. I think the ESRI one starts in the 60s. Get a bunch of names attached to a bunch of papers. 
So uh, first thing we have is just matching the names across papers. You can create this panel data set of productivity by names. But we don't know yet if you're in one of those departments or somewhere else. So here's where Mide comes in. And um, combining the work and paper series that's scraped with the staff lists from the institution websites, Mide goes through, does resume scraping, and gets some details on the authors there. Um, looking at the actual work in papers, the, the PDF documents that are listed in the series, Mide looks at the affiliation of the authors there. And then we can split, at least in the last five years, who's actually in the department from who's some co-author who's somewhere else. So for the recent part of the sample, we actually know uh, something very close to the exact staff lists of the departments. So this allows us to do two things. One is to look at the general trend of names uh, by gender, just going back all the way. I think we limit it to the 80s because it gets a bit messy before that, not too many observations. Um, and look at productivity by working paper output going back then. So we have a few figures on that in the table, but the main results are coming just in the recent five years, uh, 2015 to, or excuse me, 2016 to 2020, looking at number of working papers put out by men, by women, and then looking at promotion rates, which uh, we get from the CVs. Wow, a lot uh, of work. Um, and huh. was that um, matching, was that done by hand or were we able to? By the first and last names. Okay. Okay, right. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Very yeah. good. And and a bit of manual cleaning uh, on top of that. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a lot of work. Okay. So you have so you have a data set going right back as far as you can, I suppose, on men versus women, or sort of on output in general, and tied by each researcher in each institution, tied to um tied to uh yeah and that and, and you have the papers and you have the researchers uh, i was just thinking there you don't want to that could be useful for some sort of hr department if you want to see how, who's been underperforming or performing well but um anyway we won't go into that but um uh okay so you have this information and then you want to just when you're breaking it down by gender then how how do you perform the analysis is it just a straight um rate of productivity by gender or how or is there a more sophisticated method than that so first thing we do we observe that men put out one to two more working papers uh, over the course of the five years and so there is a slight productivity difference now this is happening in working papers not in published papers and so we just see that men are writing more papers this doesn't say anything about the quality of the paper or anything else. Uh, it could be different strategies, could be um, some field-related differences. Sure. So the next step on from just observing that uh, descriptive statistic is to analyze the promotion rates. And so we see, we break it up by the level of the economists. So we'll say assistant economists, associate economists are the ones who we look at the results for. If you're uh, a full professor, you're already promoted as much as you can. So we're not worried about you. You're in a good uh, situation. So um, for assistant economists, that would be assistant professors in the universities and the corresponding positions at the central bank and the SRI. 
we see over the course of the five years, about 15% of them promoted to the next level. And of associates over the course of those five years, about 30% of them. Now, it turns out that for the assistants, this is driven by work and paper productivity. So once you uh, introduce assistant-specific productivity, we see that one paper increases your promotion probability by about 3 or 4%. Now, for associates, the marginal return to papers, it, it doesn't change your promotion probability. And just by virtue of being an associate there, then you have this probability to move up a level. So what it's looking like is working papers is a seen as it's taken by the departments as a useful signal of productivity at the assistant level. By the time you get to associate, well, there's something else that's going on there. Okay. I wonder when you get to that, like I remember hearing many people describe at different stages of your career, there's different emphasis on different roles. Maybe in the early stage, it's publication, maybe mid stage, it's, you know, teaching or service, these sort of factors maybe come into play that, that, that that's difficult to pick up. Yeah, I think um, that plays a part here because I think what can explain the um, role gender difference um, uh, for men and women is that typically in Ireland, you're hired uh, on a permanent contract where it's not like the US where you have to be very research intense the first few years to get tenure. Uh, so here, maybe there is kind of less of a need or, or research is uh, maybe not 100% what people are encouraged to put their energy into. So maybe at the beginning of the career, um, there's teaching, there's a lot of admin uh, that uh, is allocated differently across genders. So that might, um, that might contribute to that grow gender difference. Okay. So you said that there's different jobs allocated differently across genders. What type of jobs would they be or how, how would that play out? Uh, unfortunately, it's very difficult to get data on that. Um, we sure. would love to be Maybe, able to yeah. okay, know how much teaching one gets and how much uh, admin one does, but it's been tricky trying to get even just basic data from each. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's very true, actually. Uh, but um, I think while that, um, while that, you know, it's hard to get the data um, to to show how it's happening in Irish university context, there's a lot of evidence that does show that, you know, um, for example, in an experimental setting, if you know you you've got uh, there's a study that shows if you've got a if you've got a button and um, if somebody in the group presses it, you know everyone gets a reward, but the person who presses it gets gets a lesser reward, um, and women are more likely to say, oh, look, sure, I'll take take it for the team and press this button um, and then if you uh, even if you you assign a manager they're also women are more likely to be asked to do this kind of low reward task um, and there's there's quite a bit of evidence that 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 does kind of play into then the, the broader um uh, career and uh institutional setups sure um okay so so maybe if you might want to give me the motivation behind your conference study and uh, how, how, how that played out and how that fits in, I suppose, would be useful. Yeah, so I can speak about that. There's um, a couple of papers that have looked at whether or not um, there is gender difference in terms of acceptance rates into conferences. And why this is important to study is because conferences are, uh, one could say, an important input into the researcher's uh, productivity function, I like to think of. 
um, you go to a conference, you meet a lot of people, you get to talk about your research. Um, so it's very helpful to be able to, to um, go to one. Um, but typically for a lot of conferences, you have to submit your paper and then this is then judged by uh, either the organizer or a reviewer as to its uh, suitability uh, and I suppose technical merit as well and a few other um, uh, components. Uh, and that determines whether or not you're accepted. So here we're interested to know whether or not there is uh, gender bias in terms of um, who gets accepted. Um, and shall I go on with the data then? Yeah, yeah, for ahead. Uh, yeah, so what we've done here is that the Irish Economic Association has an annual conference um, and it's held in different places in Ireland every year. And so I've been able to get data from the organizers from uh, going back to 2016 and so 16, 17, 18, 19, and then 21. And I've only just recently got the 22 uh, data. So I won't be able to talk about that data set um, today, but um, up until 2021, um, we've got basically all submission data. So um, the title, the abstract, the authors, uh, so submitting author and all co-authors of the paper, um, the reviewer, um, and their um, judgment of the paper. So along four components, technical merit, originality, relevance, and readability, and then their general score for the paper, and then the, the conference organizer's decision whether or not to accept. Uh, so we've got all of that. Um, and then we've also complemented that with additional data uh, that Mita uh, helped with. So we went to Google Scholar and then checked for each of the um, submission title, whether or not the paper has eventually been published after the conference, uh, how many citations it's gotten um, up until the end of last year, and even how many citations it had before the conference, if it had been cited at all. Uh, and then we also checked for the submitting author, um, their experience in terms of how long ago they got a PhD, um, whether or not they have published in the past, how many papers they have published, and then for the co-authors, we also have whether or not they have a PhD and what year um, they got their PhD in, just to get a measure of um, experience, I suppose. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So you have all these determinants and acceptance versus reject, and then you can control for maybe factors that would confound, that would maybe also explain the probability of acceptance. So you can exactly. isolate maybe the effect of, of gender. Would that be the idea? Exactly, yeah. So the very basic specification is just whether or not the uh, submitting author is male or female. Uh, and alternatively, the proportion of authors on the paper uh, that is uh, male or female. Because of course, if you have a team of seven authors, um, it mm. makes more sense to think about it as a percentage of uh, female uh, rather sure. than one zero, yeah. Okay, so do you do you consider as a percentage, is that how, how you measure it in, in your paper or? Uh, we do both. Okay. So we do both the submitting author and the proportion of authors on the paper who is female. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. And so what sort of findings do you get? In terms of, I guess, the most interesting outcome, which is whether or not a paper is accepted, um, this is actually gender neutral. So it seems that organizers are um, gender neutral. They, they don't display any sign of bias. Um, and then the next outcome that we think is interesting to look at is the um, 
reviewers' acceptance score. So this is just their general score between one to five of each paper. Uh, and again, we don't find that this is uh, showing any sign of gender bias. But what's interesting is that when we split the data into uh, papers that are reviewed by male versus female referees, there we see quite um, a substantial indication of in-group gender bias. And by this, I mean, so male referees tend to give higher scores to papers that are authored by um, a higher proportion of males. Do they know that, that, that they're males on the papers or is it just... Oh, yeah, that, that's important. That's an important point. Thanks, Niall. So uh, <laughs> the papers are not anonymized up until and including 2019. Okay. Uh, so what I'm going to be talking about here is papers from 16 to 2019, where um, the referees can quite clearly see the names of the authors and can um, very well guess whether or not the authors are males or females. Um, so there we see this in-group gender bias. Um, the bias disappears when we control for reviewer fixed effects and paper quality. And by paper quality, I mean how many citation it has and whether or not it's been published. Uh, so it seems that at least this bias could be explained somewhat. Mm. But what is interesting is when uh, in 2021, the papers were actually anonymized, uh, we see much larger indications of in-group gender bias. And uh, this bias for male referees especially uh, does not disappear when we control for uh, reviewer fixed effects and quality. Um, so, so that's quite unexpected. So when it becomes anonymized, there there is more of a of a bias. Is that yes? Okay. Yes. So driving that one. I wonder is there a, is there something to do with fields? Maybe are you able to like for example, if I see another energy paper, I'm perhaps more pre positively predisposed than something that I'm not as in like macro, for example, which I'm not very interested in. <laughs> I wonder does that yeah. have an effect? Um, so so we control for fields, and also the papers are allocated to reviewers that are supposed to be in the correct field okay um so, so that's yeah. sort of, okay so it is okay there isn't it is controlled for to an extent i suppose yeah we, we control for everything we could control for yeah um, okay interesting right um mm -hmm. i don't know what else could be now another thing i'm just off the top of my head i wonder like because nowadays nothing really is blind so like if i get a paper to review the first thing i do is google it and sometimes i can mm. see who has written it so i wonder is that coming yeah effect. yeah exactly so we we suspect that this might be happening as well so we actually surveyed the reviewers from 2021 who were supposed to be reviewing anonymized papers and we asked whether or not they recognize the papers that they review and if they try to google it um, so the response rate is about 30 percent so only about 17 reviewers um, mm. uh, responded not a lot but and each referee on average reviews three papers uh, but we found that 25% uh, of reviewers say that they either recognize the paper, they've seen it somewhere, uh, it being presented, uh, or that they actually look it up on Google. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think it is unrealistic to ex expect that anonymized submissions are truly anonymous these days. So yeah. another, another explanation that has been uh, proposed by other researchers looking at um, anonymized versus non-anonymized um, economics job applications is that, you know, if you see the names and you would like to, uh, you know, uh, apply affirmative action towards females, you could do so, right? But when the names are not there, you could no longer do so. So 
maybe it's that just that people cannot apply affirmative okay. action anymore or another word another way of saying this is basically if people want to discriminate uh, they have this veil right so they can say oh i'm not really discriminating because the papers were anonymous uh, when actually they okay. could see uh, who the papers are written by so, right yeah so that would be more of sort of an active discrimination i suppose if that was the case as opposed to maybe something unconscious or yeah it's hard to, i don't know yeah <laughs> yeah it's hard to say whether it's conscious or unconscious but um yeah so that like it seems like a really interesting result how does that compare with maybe other results in the literature or like for example has that been found elsewhere that the effect that you found with, with, mm. when you bring in anonymization or is that something that the first to find are you the first to find that sort of effect um so we're the first to find this in the conference submission context uh so previous work using conference submission data has found that um in in three european conferences uh there is discrimination against female authors but this is when the papers are not anonymized uh but the paper that I was referring to earlier, where they found that people could no longer apply affirmative action. So this was using um, applications submitted for uh, assistant professor positions in a European uh, institution by PhD economists. Um, before anonymization, um, compared to after, they found that uh, women lost out. So, and their proposed explanation is exactly that. So people who would have liked to support women uh, no longer could do so when they couldn't see who was a woman and who wasn't. Okay. No, it is, it is really interesting. Um, and it's definitely not what, not what you expect, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, now, this is a hard question, but how do we use that information then? Or what's the, I suppose, recommendation? Or have you, I don't know if you've thought about that at all. Or Yeah, I've spoken about it with the IEA and uh, ISWI, and uh, obviously this is just based on one year of data. So this is why we're looking at data from 2022 and uh, we're gonna see if oh, yeah. the effect is robust or not before they decide to remove <laughs> the anonymization policy. Okay, yeah, wow, that's true. It is interesting. It'd be interesting to see how, yeah, how it holds up with additional data, but definitely very interesting result. We, we had a little bit of results. No, we don't focus on them quite as much as the, uh, the in-group gender bias that uh, seems both genders show uh, and which is doubled after the blinding. But we have a bit of stuff there on students and Irish submitters. And it looks like there's a little bit of a higher chance for students to get into the conference after the blinding. And there's a, a bit of a lower chance for the Irish affiliation authors to get in. So it right. seems uh, unlike the uh, gender dynamic, the blinding actually seems to have an effect there. That's interesting. Um, okay, so like, okay, we've talked a lot about the biases, how they might manifest in some like research, interesting research in an Irish context and um, how it's sort of playing out there and some, you know, counterintuitive results. Um, but you mentioned a few like international evidence, maybe perhaps on, taking that these sort of findings and similar findings in international context and how do we you know put put that to work and maybe correct for some sort of biases that are at play and you brought to my attention some really interesting papers on this and some sort of interventions in international context some of which have somewhat counterintuitive uh, findings but one that was there on um 
I, I suppose it's more of an American context where you have your tenure clocks, so where you have an X amount of years where you're evaluated on your output and within that time you have to produce X whatever sort of productivity levels. And that can be perhaps harsher on, on women if, if it coincides with other commitments like family rearing and things like that. But there was some paper you mentioned here, maybe you can take me through it, but on you know stopping the clock, as they say, for an gender neutral way that didn't necessarily have the desired outcome. I wonder, would you be able to take me through that? Uh, yeah, sure. Um... So and first of all, maybe to say for, for the listener who's not um, an academic economist, you know, why any of this matters, but just to kind of suppose bring it back to the fact that, you know, economists are often kind of advising policymakers, they're informing kind of what, you know, how how the world works and, and what's seen as important and what's seen as, you know, evidence-based policy and so forth. So I think that, you know, if we do have these gaps where, or you know where people aren't um, getting their uh, you know their work out, or or they're they're having to kind of drop out of the the whole profession. Um, it's it's kind of has has implications for for society more broadly. But um, on that specific example, um, it, that's exactly the idea. This is that um, you know after you've done your PhD and maybe you've been on a short term contract in the US, you you get this kind of assistant professor job where you're on a time limited contract it's kind of probationary and then you've got about seven years to kind of uh get the work out and then uh, the clock is ticking and um you know at that point having a child could clearly set you back in terms of your productivity even if it brings lots of other good things into your life so the idea is to put the clock on pause um so that you know you can you can um be evaluated in a more fair way compared to your colleagues who didn't have kids and this should really help women because it should uh you know give them a a more equal opportunity to produce their research but in reality they found that um it increased the likelihood that men got a tenure so a permanent position at the end of that that stint and it decreased the likelihood that women got it um and they reckon that it's because men were able to use the time more productively or strategically uh, and it kind of went by publications in these top five or high status economics journals. And econ has a particular kind of link to these to these really high prestige journals, maybe more so than other disciplines. Put a lot of value on that. So um, it's not that women were dropping out of academia necessarily as a result of this, but they had to maybe move job uh, before they'd get another you know, a permanent position elsewhere. And that means in the States often, you know, moving city, moving state. So a lot of upheaval um, and, you know, a policy that really tried to make things better and actually ended up having the opposite effect. Yeah. And when I think about it, when you're in that environment, it's really, it's ultra competitive and how well you perform is relative. If it's a case that you're just moving the bar slightly differently, but it's still the same playing field really and if there's if there's if in the old playing field there was a bias well it's going to be in the new one I would imagine so like yeah and exacerbated because you know men are able to maybe use their their year that they get off after the birth of their child to focus on research uninterrupted from teaching whereas women are maybe using it to do childcare. if you're in a society or in a couple for example where you know the man 
takes less responsibility for childcare or, or indeed elder care or any other kind of household work. Oh. So I think it's that you've got this interaction of a policy with a kind of a societal norm. So it's an example of where, you know, policy changes, but if, if our, if our household and societal kind of norms don't change to match, you can actually exacerbate the gap. Yeah. It's interesting how well, I suppose economists get intrigued by unintended consequences. I don't like to see them, but uh, that's it's an example of that. The lesson here is that I suppose the gender neutral type of intervention in that context made the issue worse. A gender specific intervention perhaps might be better able to take account of that, that social norm that, that, that you mentioned. Perhaps. Exactly. And they did, they had, uh, they looked as well at the, the, female-specific uh, tenure clock pause and found that that had, uh, had, didn't have these, these negative or these gender differential effects. Um, so it's true that sometimes, you know, the more equal policy on paper yeah. might lead to a, a less equal outcome. And it's not to say that paternity leaves, for example, aren't, aren't good. There's a, you know, there's a lot of evidence that paternity leave can, can be really beneficial, but, it ha- you know, it has to be accompanied by, um, you know, I suppose what you might call male allyship and, 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 and societal changes that, that encourage men to really, you know, uh, contribute equally to the house and care duties. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's some other interesting interventions that you mentioned before. And one here was on employer mandated childcare reduced rate wages. Maybe you could take us through that one. I don't know if you've done your homework on that one. Yeah. I find this one really interesting because, you know, childcare is clearly a massive, um, reason why women don't participate uh, or don't participate as fully as they could in the labor market. Um, and here, this was a, um, a policy brought into place in Chile where they have quite low female labor force participation, so not many women in the workplace. And uh, they requested or, or you know, mandated that employers with more than 20 female employees should provide childcare. Um, and there were a number of different ways that they could do that. But what essentially it kind of works out as is a kind of a, an extra cost uh, or almost like a tax on a female employee and uh, they found that um, it had a really negative effect on the starting wages of female employees um, this was what they were able to look at they, they weren't necessarily able to look at how, whether you know firms stopped hiring women altogether but but the but firms were kind of hiring women at, at lower wage rates after this policy came in so again, another unintended consequence of a well-intended policy. Like, is that something that, that you think could play out in a different context? Or, like, I suppose it came to my mind was, I wonder, is it something that's context-specific or is it something that's, I suppose, universal? Or, or how, how, how would we consider that in an Irish context? Or, Well, I think it's certainly an unusual way to tackle childcare yeah. gaps in provision. Um, probably not something we'd, bring into place here straight away. I think there's a degree of universality in that, you know, if you impose an extra cost on a business, mm. um, they, their incentives uh, are all set up to, you know, respond to that. So if we did that in Ireland, you know, we, we might see a similar effect. Um, that said, you know, it's, you know, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, maybe a different threshold could work or providing incentives for employers to provide childcare. You know, perhaps in Ireland, the multinational sector, for example, could actually absorb childcare costs and perhaps some, some do already provide childcare. But um, we already know that there's a gender gap in, say, tech sectors, for example. So 
you want to be really careful about not exacerbating that gap. Say if you said, okay, right, all the multinationals now have to pay for childcare and they just stop hiring women. Um, You know, probably it would be more nuanced than that, but I think public provision is, uh, you know, there's lots of evidence that, 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 that really can contribute to um, women's participation. So maybe that's a kind of a a cleaner strategy. Okay. We've talked a lot about some things that didn't work, but maybe you have any insight on, on sort of, more successful interventions or, or uh, ones that, that perhaps are that we can leave on a positive note. For sure. I think this is, and I think this is what's really important to say is that change begets change, uh, particularly in the area of kind of social norms and gender norms. So I think, you know, there has been, there have been a lot of improvements and we can really build on these and kind of capitalize on the momentum. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, some of the evidence that's out there is showing that quite small interventions just quite simple things like for example emailing students female students with a grade above the median in economics in their first year of economics can increase the numbers who choose to major in economics afterwards that's some evidence from the US or um something as simple as having um a female past graduate of the university come back and give a talk um not even a talk about gender and eco- economics you know really just a talk about being an economist and what economists do, uh, encourage women to, to major in, in that subject too. And in the US, there's been um, there's now quite extensive uh, funding to 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 um, in, to encourage three kind of domains of change. So one is delivering better information to students. Another is providing mentorship. Um, or role models. Another is on altered instructional content and presentation style. And this is um, the Undergraduate Women in Economics Challenge uh, launched in 2015. And 20 uh, universities in in the US are are, are kind of participating in that. And that's all kind of evidence that's very robust. And uh, and it has this idea of causal identification. So we can really tell that, you know, if you implement this, you know, what exactly is it leading to? So that's what economists <laughs> love to see. Um, and some of the early uh, evidence from that is quite promising around these areas of role models, information, provision, asp- uh, aspirations, uh, mentorship. And then I think at later stages, um, you know, there, there's evidence that um, things like, you know, sending personalized emails, which encourage graduate students to submit to conferences can boost their, um, their uh, likelihood to submit and then, and then their participation. And and as Margaret said before, these are areas that are really uh, important for building your career and your network. Um, I think also, you know, they're tackling things like sexual harassment and the increased prevalence of short-term impermanent contracts is also quite important in terms of making the environment less um, less hostile and more welcoming for women who who you know have uh, more more of these negative experiences in the workplace related to their gender yeah and then yeah as we've said before childcare flexibility paternity leaves um there's a, there's a lot we can do so so plenty room for improvement yeah not some lot of interesting things there and some like really almost zero cost interventions that you mentioned like for example just raising the awareness and salience of the different aspects of of what you can do as an economist and some that perhaps maybe are less prevalent like 
less salient for women than for men um having speakers at schools like that's a relatively little co- okay cost time but in terms of money it doesn't cost anything really um which is really interesting to hear that that has a positive effect Hmm. Um, and the Irish Society for Women in Economics had a collaboration this year with uh, the Young Economist of the Year, where we, um, you know, our committee members made short videos saying, you know, what it is that we do, because sometimes um, people's understanding of economics is, is that it's all kind of banking, finance, uh kind of money and they might not be aware of you know the fact that there's a lot of behavioral economics or development or health or um all kinds of things that you can you can analyze using the tools that economics provides so i think even just uh broadening our understanding of what an economist is can be so helpful yeah absolutely now that is very interesting one thing that might be interesting to sort of look forward or to do would be to look forward to think about um you know given what you've done and sort of insight that you've that you've taken where would you see the next few steps into the work and how would you see it i suppose leading on to maybe implementing changes or what sort of what sort of interventions or what sort of uh impact might, might, might the work have i think to get a, a more accurate idea about differences in uh productivity and how this is affected by um as media was saying earlier non-promotable tasks that uh, might be allocated differently across genders or that um, women might be more likely to volunteer for, it would be really nice to have uh, good data. Uh, and unfortunately, this is something that I know not just myself, but previous um, members from the IEA have uh, tried to get and uh, have not been able to. So um, yeah, data availability with regards to yeah, um, yeah teaching and admin tasks uh, would be nice. I, I know that... Um, uh, I get lots of advice saying, you know, please make sure you record every time you're asked to do some of these informal tasks that, you know, you might not be compensated for. Just make sure that people are aware that you are spending uh, a lot of time writing reference letters for students, yeah. um, doing admin that might not show up on your resume, but does take up a lot of hours. So I think if there is no data centrally, uh, each of us can um, start by <laughs> recording these things ourselves. That's good advice. I think I'll take that as well, actually. <laughs> um, one thing that I think is is interesting is that we're going to have um, gender pay gap reporting. That act was brought in in 2021 and people, uh, organizations with over 250 employees will be reporting on the gender pay gap. And um, so this is, you know, this is not just something that's of interest to economists, obviously. Um, you know, this applies to all sectors across uh, the country. And uh, I think that is going to be an improvement in data availability in the, you know, in the broader gender equality domain. And uh, I also think that um, uh, flexi time, for example, in the civil service that was revoked with COVID and hasn't been reinstated. Um, And there's evidence from a recent ESRI report on um, civil servants from the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine, which shows that um, flexible working was uh, more likely to be used by women, but um, that they felt that this negatively affected their chances of promotion. And so it could be normalized for both, you know, both men and women. And, and that this, I think, could really help with the gaps. But uh, the department, you know, that, that's part of a broader study that found that women were more likely to, ex- to perceive gender bias um, but men believed that there was gender bias that pre- favored women in 
promotional competitions. But then they looked at the admin data and they said, actually, that they found the authors found that there were no significant differences in the success rate of men and women that applied for promotion. So I really think that, yeah, the data is a way to get at these at these gaps. And yeah. the more of it we can access, the the better picture we get, uh, uh, and, and the more we can draw, you know, policy implications from it. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, okay, guys, I think uh, that's everything. I think we can wrap it up. So thanks a million. Thanks for everything. And, um, and all the best. Thanks a lot, Niall. Thanks for having us, Niall. No worries. Yeah, thanks for having us on.